Hello and Happy New Year, P56 listeners. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season and are continuing to stay safe. After a brief hiatus due to the holidays, I'm glad to be back to bring you episode 10 of the podcast, which promises to be both engaging and insightful. Joining me on the podcast today is John Heinlich, Vice President and Chief Economist of Airlines for America, or A4A. He has served in this role since 2001 and is responsible for matters pertaining to economics and energy and frequently engages with members of the media. Prior to A4A, Heimlich spent five years at United Airlines in financial planning, financial analysis, and international and regulatory affairs. In the latter role, he worked on competition matters, mergers, root cases, and antitrust immunity for alliances. A native of the great state of Ohio in the city of Kent, John holds a bachelor's degree magna cum laude Phi Beta Kappa from Cornell University and a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Martin. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. And uh, we'll, we'll get started. I know that many listeners may be familiar with the work that Airlines for America and A4A does, but can you elaborate a little bit more about A4A? They represent 10 carriers and one associate carrier. Can you talk briefly about the work that you and the larger A4A team does to represent these carriers? Sure. So we're, uh, we're an industry trade association. We've been around since 1936. I joined in 2001, uh, coming from United, as you noted. We are uh, a standards-making group, an advocacy group, uh, a voice of the industry with with media and with public officials, and we uh, help uh, through our board of directors, which is composed of the CEOs of our member carriers. Uh, We formulate positions on public policy, and sometimes we have consensus, and sometimes we don't. I think one thing I'd I'd, uh, stress is that Uh, Not only that we operate by consensus, but our role as a voice and an advocate and a standards-making organization are on a global role. It could be state and local. It could be federal, international. So wherever our members operate, we are a, a resource and a voice for them. And you do represent these carriers are the major carriers out there like United, Southwest, UPS, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, people may not realize. So we have seven passenger carriers, and uh, those include uh, JetBlue, Hawaiian, Alaska, uh, the so-called Big Four. And then we have UPS, FedEx, and Atlas. And as you noted, we have an associate member that's Air Canada, which means their full participation with the exception of our board of directors. And as chief economist for A4A, you obviously spend a lot of your time working through the financial and other performance numbers for air carriers in the U.S. It's been an incredibly tough nine months. So can you kind of give the listeners a picture of what the current economic landscape looks like for air carriers right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's extraordinarily difficult uh, and, and it's hard to believe that we're actually uh, better than we were in April of last year when when at the at the worst of it we were down 96% in in volume there were markets of course that were down 99% but system wide we were down 96% and of course we had the the cash crunch with high fixed costs and even going into that with the strongest balance sheets the industry's had in in probably decades there there are very few industries or companies other than uh, Apple or Warren Buffett who, who could withstand such a cash crunch uh, like that, such a, such a losing a few quarters worth of revenue like that almost entirely. 
the economic climate now is one where we're still 55% below pre-pandemic levels. That doesn't even take into account uh, depressed yields, which is basically the not only discounting on leisure, but also just the absence of the corporate travel, uh, which is a big problem down probably 85 to 90%. Uh, and yeah, a little bit of the, the cargo volumes are actually at an all-time high, but that just doesn't make up the shortfall. So it is a it is a fragile, uncertain recovery because, uh, again, it's not really just the fundamental economics as much as um, the fact that destinations are, are closed or travel is restricted and uh, people need the confidence to get out there that, that we will get to, but no one knows the exact time. And you mentioned cargo. Are there sectors of the industry that are doing well? I think cargo may be one of them. Are there any others that you might see? Yeah, I mean, the volume side on cargo, many cargo profitable or flights are profitable. And there is a, a ramp up in demand for not only critical supplies, but all kinds of household goods on a time sensitive or just in time basis. Some of that goes by surface these days, but it's given a boost to, to air. Although there are markets of weakness, like transatlantic uh, air cargo volumes are not doing well. Latin America is not doing especially well. For example, there are not a lot of big weddings these days, so not as many fresh flowers and, you know, some things like that. But uh, cargo is a bright spot. And, you know, just in, in general, within air travel, while nothing's doing particularly well or, or better than a year ago, things that are doing less poorly are generally beach markets uh, markets that are uh, other domestic markets that are served by low cost or ultra low cost carriers, generally leisure and what we call VFR visiting friends and relatives, uh, Mexico, Colombia, Jamaica, some of the U.S. Virgin Islands, to a lesser extent, the uh, the Rockies and the Great Plains. People, things that are either warm, unrestricted, or conducive to social distancing. Very interesting. And I think you see that a lot with some of the different new route announcements that are coming about from these carriers as well that are trying to take advantage of that kind of leisure travel. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Look, you know, JetBlue added a number of markets, um, especially uh, to and from the, uh, you know, the Caribbean and South America. Southwest has taken this opportunity to grow in, in some of the big cities, but also, of course, uh, in Miami and Palm Springs and uh, some of the ski markets in Colorado. We just saw Alaska announce the San Diego JFK, LAX Austin. I mean, another one of uh, interest is uh, Hawaii. So Hawaii is an interesting one because it had been so quarantined with March, since March 26th, uh, a 14-day mandatory quarantine had been in effect for out-of-state arrivals. That was... Uh, Re relaxed or modified effective October 15th, uh, where if you tested negative uh, for COVID within 72 hours of departure, you didn't have to observe the 14-day quarantine. Well, what did that translate to? Well, in the first half of October, with the old policy, arrivals to Hawaii were down 94%. Now they're down 70 to 72%. So, you know, we're talking a 20 to 25 point differential there in traffic. So, it's not a cause to jump for joy, but it does suggest in, in leisure markets, there is pent-up demand. There is a desire 
to travel that's not hindered by a lack of economic wherewithal, but rather influenced by travel restrictions. And if we can get, you know, standardized testing protocols to be recognized, harmonized, and, and seen as a, a preferred alternative to quarantines and travel bans, then uh, we can get this economy going. How, how does a vaccine rollout play into your outlook for the future with regards to ramping travel back up? Yeah, I mean, we, we see this as a, a four to five year proposition, meaning that 20 to 20, 2023, 2024 is where we can maybe get back to 2019 volumes. Clearly, a high rate of vaccine adoption, really vaccination, not just vaccine availability, vaccination with efficacy, and not just of the people who fly, but uh, the people who staff the destinations, whether it's hotels or, or restaurants or theme parks or uh, conferences. You know, so people need to be safe, feel safe, not just while they're traveling, but at their destinations. And even if you're visiting a family member, you know, are they all good about wearing masks and families are different. So it's very important, Martin, that vaccine deployment is accelerated and that People are encouraged to get the first dose and the second doses and that we continue, uh, you know, and it, it's not just Pfizer and Moderna, that the other vaccines in the, in the queue are uh, shown to be efficacious and then uh, approved by FDA and other authorities around the world. So it is it is absolutely essential. There, it's, the industry is really depending on it, I think, moving forward. Uh, unquestionably. I mean, you know, other therapeutics and things are important, but uh, the vaccine is probably number one because we see a plateau at about half of pre-pandemic levels without it. And and, and I was going to say, especially for business travel, for corporate travel, uh, which is going to be hesitant to put their people on the road until they can get past the, the safety concerns that people and human resources and legal departments tend to think about. <laughs> exactly. I know one of the one of the questions I have with this too, and uh, to keep on the economic side of, of the picture, obviously the airline industry is very cyclical and we see that the cycle may be starting to ramp a little bit back up and the industry will recover at some point with varying estimates of when that might occur. You just mentioned the five-year kind of window that you're looking at. Are there any constraints or limiting factors other than vaccine rollout obviously being a big one that might be present in a potential recovery for the airlines in the future? Yeah, I mean, depending on how far out we're talking about, you know, I, I think one could argue that uh, pilot supply at some point becomes an, an issue again, um, certainly to the extent that we've accelerated some of the retirements through buyout programs. So that, you know, that doesn't affect the new pipeline, but we need to make sure we keep growing that pool. So we have not just a, a lot of pilots, but a lot of high quality pilots come, coming into the applicant pool, something you're quite familiar with from your work. Perception about and policy regarding climate concerns and climate change uh, can influence the number of trips people take, their choice of mode. That's something we're, we'll be watching carefully. We're very proud of our track record there, but uh, you know, some people are just never satisfied. So that that's uh, an issue. I think you know, believe it's hard to believe right now. We could come back to a point where. Uh, delays, plague uh, growth again, and system congestion. That now clearly seems like a first world problem, and the 
a pleasant problem to have. You know, there could be other tax or regulatory measures, always have to watch for those. And then, of course, there are things like, uh, well, look, uh, we can certainly debate this, but uh, what is the role of technology going forward? Does it stimulate travel? Does it curb travel? And now that everyone is more tech savvy than they were a year ago, and all those alternatives have gotten better, will we lose, not all, but will we lose even some fraction, 5%, 10%, 15% or more of travel, that business travel that otherwise would have uh, occurred? And I think, uh, you know, I'll just say two more. One is additional strains of coronavirus or a new virus altogether uh, is always a, a risk. And then uh, I think lastly, the risk that even with vaccination, widespread vaccination, perhaps some countries uh, still decide to keep lockdowns or restrict heavy travel restrictions in place, perhaps because uh, even if a lot of people are vaccinated, first of all, not all the vaccines are 100% effective. Even if they're 95%, they're not entirely. And uh, people might not be good about distancing or mask wearing. So uh, those are some of the, the bare case issues I kind of see. I understand that. I think differing levels of vaccine rollout as well to different countries will also be a constraining factor where some of the potentially more underdeveloped countries have far longer tails of vaccine rollout than some of the more developed countries at this point in time, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, our tagline at A4A is we connect the world. And I, I often have to remind people our customer base is global even if they're not on our medal. Sometimes we're booking them on alliance partners, other code share partners. And, you know, if you, if you, the DHS APIS data, the, the manifest, onboard manifest data that's processed by commerce, and there are a few slides on, on our website about this, are fascinating if you look at the split in any U.S. country pair of the percentage of non-Americans versus Americans. There are some markets where it's heavily non-American. So, it's not just a matter of widespread vaccination in the United States. It has to be pretty much everywhere we fly. And another question that I have about this kind of financial performance, because you mentioned the few slides on the website. If someone was interested in getting that full picture of what the market looks like today for airlines, uh, where would you recommend that they get that information? Is there There's great info on the, on the website, but is there any specific area that you recommend that people keep an eye out for for a full picture? Well, I appreciate that, Martin. Uh, I take a lot of pride in the, the research we do, and I'm always trying to make it better, and I'm obsessive about keeping it up to date. I feel if it's hours old, I'm behind, uh, let alone days behind. So uh, go to airlines.org. Uh, one of the main menus is data and statistics, and then under there, there are a couple of options. But uh, the one that I'm updating most frequently is the impacts of COVID-19 or something to that effect, and COVID impact data updates. So that's sort of the core presentation this, these days. There's also one called Industry Review and Outlook that's a little broader and goes, you know, sort of over the years and decades. But uh, those are the main ones. We also have uh, one on current operations at airports in the U.S. that's kind of a map-based dashboard that I like. That's like super real time. If you want to zoom in on what's going on in the system today, that's not a financial site. That's powered by a mass site, subsidiary of Global Eagle. But that gives you a sense of, you know, when you when you hear things, 
whether it could be weather, but it could also be things like um, ATC facilities that are closed due to COVID outbreaks at FAA facilities. So, you know, and we recently had that in South Florida, and I think in in uh, Fort Worth, uh, affecting operations. So you can you can click on uh, the top sixty markets and get some detail. Very good, and I know, and I will include a link in the podcast description for those that might be interested in finding that, so that you can uh, link directly to that from your preferred podcast listening source. So that's great. And I know that the information covers a lot uh, that's out there. So once again, thank you for doing that. I look at it fairly regularly myself as I try to get a handle on what's going on in the industry today. That's great to hear. And by the way, feedback from you or your listeners is always uh, welcome. As long as it's cordial, I'm, I'm happy to consider adding something or making it clear or whatever else I can do. That's great to know. I want to switch gears a little bit to the more legislative and political affairs side of the the world. Obviously, we recently had over the holidays the passage of the extension of the CARES Act. What effect does this have on A4A member carriers and their operations? So, namely, the extension of the payroll support program, which people now refer to as PSP2, uh, that that clearly was a, a boost to airlines and most importantly our workforce uh, retroactive to December 1st uh, 2020 ex- uh, running through the four-month period to, to March 31st uh, it essentially uh, covers well it covers a good chunk uh, more than 80 percent probably of our payroll expenses for that period and ensures no involuntary uh, furloughs or pay rate reductions during that time and also requires that we uh, recall anyone, I think, who was furloughed on or after October 1st, if I'm remembering correctly. So, you know, it's a boost in terms of keeping our payroll expenses uh, lower uh, during those four months, but also better positioning us for, knock on wood, a demand recovery uh, can't come soon enough, but so we don't have to recall uh, workers and retrain them uh, suddenly, uh, when that's the case, the the idea here has always been to keep our workers employed and off state, local, and federal unemployment programs, uh, and keep them trained and ready uh, until demand has come. It's just that the the bridge that was built uh, turns out it had to be a lot longer than anyone contemplated uh, nine months ago. I think it's important to, to note that, especially for pilots and flight attendants, the training requirements on both job categories are significantly higher, and pilots in particular, but also flight attendants, that there's a pretty decent training window that's out there, and someone that's recalled today is probably not going to be able to jump right into the cockpit or jump right into the cabin of an airplane, both by regulation and by practical application, too. That's absolutely right, Yeah. I think with this as well, do you foresee potentially a need moving forward for another extension, or do you think everything will start to ramp up looking long? I'm not sure A4A has, uh, that we've had our board really discuss that yet. Potentially, it's hard to rule out any, you know, potentially a need for it. I mean, gosh, if if demand stays, you know, 50, 60% below uh, year ago levels for months and months and months and months, then then something, either that or uh, 
a reinstatement of the excise tax holidays, which expired uh, January 1st, or something else, you know, heavy stimulus in the economy. I do expect for sure some of the uh, labor group associations to pursue uh, at least a bridge through the summer. You know, we haven't gotten to that point yet. We are, we're looking forward to working with the new administration on a number of items and uh, ones that we know will be good for our industry and good for our workforce. And you'd mentioned actually it was a, an un, kind of under-promoted part of the economic side, uh, economic benefit side of the relief packages that have been passed are those tax holidays. Can you talk a little bit more about the role taxes play in the day-to-day operations of the airlines that are out there? Well, yeah. So, so the, the CARES Act passed uh, March 27th suspended the aviation excise taxes that, that feed the airport and airway trust fund from March 28th through December 31st, 2020. That was uh, estimated by CB, Congressional Budget Office and the Senate Joint Committee on Taxation uh, to be worth approximately $4 billion in foregone revenue to the trust fund. And, and therefore, we can conclude uh, to our industry. Uh, and that means taxes on cargo waybills or uh, domestic and international tickets or on the consumption of fuel domestically, or, or even on the sales of, uh, of mileage awards to third parties, like uh, you know the ability of credit cards to award miles. Those things were all not subject to any federal excise tax during that period, uh, which really uh, it does two things. It, it eases our cash outflow crunch, uh, but it also gives us the opportunity to offer lower fares to our customers, uh, which helps lure people back to the skies at a time when there's a lot of economic uncertainty for them and financial uncertainty for the airlines. I I know that piece is generally not covered as much. So it's interesting to take a dive and see where that fits in. And even that little bit of relief probably makes a big difference for A4A member carriers. It, it absolutely does. Yeah, it's it's real hard cash that you remit, you know, to the government. Uh, some of them are monthly, some are semi-monthly and, and others. But, uh, you know, and, and the real, I think, solution there is, you know, the the, the Airport and Airway Trust Fund currently pays for something like 99% of FAA's expenses, operating capital. And over the years, the general fund contribution has really declined. Uh, so it's one of the only agencies in the federal government that's almost entirely funded by the users of the system. And we'd really like to see, we're, we're very happy that the CARES Act gave uh, supplemental grants to the airports during this period and to help backfill uh, some of the revenue shortfall, and um, uh, they did get another round in in uh, this extension, although not the amounts they wanted. Um, but further general fund contribution to FAA would be welcome. In the politics of the world, maybe we'll see that. Hopefully, perhaps. I know, and you mentioned the Biden administration transition, and obviously we are in the midst of a presidential transition that will be finished in about two weeks or so, just under two weeks, uh, with some tumult in the grander scheme of things, uh, unfortunately. But what areas do you see the Biden administration, and particularly the Buttigieg Department of Transportation, or Buttigieg-led Department of Transportation, impacting the airline industry? 
Well, I think the fact that he's uh, very pro-infrastructure and energetic is great. We were very pleased with a number of things that uh, Secretary Chow did, um, and we expect uh, Secretary Buttigieg to, to build on, on many of those. I think uh, one thing that's uh, key for us is to educate him as to the importance of air traffic control infrastructure within the broader scheme of national infrastructure and to make sure that uh, any infrastructure package or stimulus considers the importance of strong, efficient ATC to our economy and to the aviation system. That can be procedural, but it can also be all the various federal or contracted facilities, uh, the facilities and equipment budget of FAA. And uh, more efficient ways of moving planes, I think, can be, hopefully they recognize that that is wholly consistent with their climate-related objectives. Because we certainly don't want uh, to consume any more fuel or uh, output any emissions that we don't uh, need to, to move our our passengers and goods affordably and efficiently. Obviously, we, we uh, will applaud anything he can do to ensure continued safety and an adequate number of uh, controllers because they had their own supply issues, just like we did with pilots. So I think, I think uh, and to the extent that, uh, by the way, FAA can continue to be a champion, which they have been, on the development and deployment of sustainable aviation fuels. Uh, we would also, people don't often think about FAA in that role, but they have a very important voice in research, also on clean engine uh, programs. Uh, there are a number of grant programs for research and uh, partnerships with academia that, that they do on the, the SAF so-called front. And that's an interesting piece of the work that you do, and it might be worth talking a little bit more and diving in with energy and oil and alternative energies that might be out there. Where do we stand right now with those kind of viable alternatives to jet fuel or aviation fuel in general? Well, we're, we're, we're proud that we've that we're proud that through uh, ASTM International Standards Body that we've gotten. I think now we're on six or seven, maybe even seven pathways uh, approved. Uh, the, the challenge continues to be largely the cost of the feedstock to make the fuels, which is a wide array of feedstocks. But we feel like we are coming down the cost curve. Uh, that One of the big challenges has been that the various policy incentives in, uh, in <clears throat> legislation and EPA and a lot of state programs tend to be uh, much more favorable to alternative ground fuels than they are to alternative aviation fuels, or uh, more precisely to renewable diesel than they are to renewable jet. And if we can close that gap by at least 50 cents per gallon, the, the gap between the two, then producers will have more incentive to produce jet, uh, at least on parity with diesel, if not more so, and then we can get up to scale and those commercial scales will have uh, benefits in, in, uh, in costs. So really getting the scale and producing the lower unit costs for the fuel is really the goal. And, you know, we, we need to continue to do uh, education on that front. And, and perhaps this administration can be helpful. And this Congress, I should say. Because we're dealing with the larger picture of the president and presidential administration and a new Congress coming into place. Uh, we, we absolutely are. 
With the biofuel and alternative methods of propulsion, one of the things I talked about on the last episode with uh, Faye Malarkey Black was electric aircraft and the regional airlines and how that might affect regional aviation. Do you foresee electric aircraft coming into being affecting the larger major carriers, your, your member carriers, if you will, or is that still too far off? You know, unfortunately, I don't see that before I retire. Of course, I'm not going to tell you when I plan to retire so you can, you know, work your models there. But um, uh, for disclosure, I'm not afraid to share that I'm 51 so people can draw whatever uh, conclusions they want. Let's just say no time soon. But I am hopeful that in uh, the short haul segment, um, and as you know, over time, regional airline stage lengths got longer and longer, but I think the short haul component of, of what those guys operate certainly holds promise. And maybe from the, the folks who operate smaller equipment like the Cape Airs, and, you know, so there, there is, uh, and, and maybe Eva Air in Alaska, you know, we need to handle all sorts of weather conditions and you need, you need uh, energy density in the batteries uh, to overcome the the weight issues. So, but there are a lot of very smart people working on this this problem. I, I don't think it will provide uh, mean much uh, for the major carriers, but I think it can. Uh, but, but we could, you know, the other the other thing is we could see some hybrid uh, electric and traditional propulsion, which might help with fuel efficiency. For the majors, uh, perhaps, which um, can either uh, reduce your trip costs or increase your aircraft range. I think one of the other things that might be a limiting factor, and I bring this up every time, I I love you and I both sit on a a transportation research board committee, which the meeting is going on virtually now. But I love when the meeting is in person in Washington, D.C., and everybody talks about the future being all UAS and all electric aircraft and small mobility to get everybody everywhere as we're sitting in a hotel meeting room in the midst of the most regulated and prohibited airspace in the world. Uh, thinking about yeah. trying to get that done. But I think one of the big, one of the other limiting factors is probably the regulatory side too, of just how slow we are to adopt new aircraft and other technological designs. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we, we have seen uh, quite a bit of progress. I think the last two years on whether it's, you know, commercial space and experimental aviation uh, and uh integrating UAS into the system. And I'm glad that they have these various management advisory committees to inform that, that process. But uh, yeah, I mean, integration of uh, so-called new entrants to the airspace uh, is something that we think about and actively work on quite a bit to make sure, or at least minimize the degree to which they can um, certainly to which they could jeopardize safety, but, but also to make sure they don't compromise our efficiency. Um, it, you know, it's hard to tell uh, our, our customers that, sorry, your flight is being delayed because a rocket ship just took off uh, or a satellite just launched a few miles from a major airport. And they might say, well, why would it be, why would they do that from, a, you know, so close to a major airport? And you know, we all know the answer, the political process. So, Obviously, one other piece of this presidential transition has been international relations and the difference in, in changes that might come from that. Do you see any difference in air service or access to foreign markets that might come about as a result of this transition as well? 
I'm not sure I would expect, I don't think I'd see a, a big shift just in terms of market access philosophy. I see it more as related to the pandemic and getting markets open more quickly by endorsing harmonized testing standards and harmonized health passport standards in lieu of, and then getting folks to agree internationally to accept those in lieu of quarantine. So I think that's where we can make a lot of progress. I don't necessarily think they're going to have different stances on, you know, US China open skies or, or, or uh, something like that. But, uh, you know, I mean, my, most of the major markets at this point are open from an open sky standpoint. Uh, there's always the issues with Cuba and China and some others, but most of the big ones are open. And, and I, I'll say it again, like I, I half joked about the congestion problem. I mean, let's hope we can get back to the point where if only we had more frequencies to China, you know, we could serve all this demand profitably. I, I, I can't wait for that day. It'll be a great conversation to have when we get to that. And we'll go, isn't this quaint? <laughs> yes. Well, obviously, the pandemic and the resulting economic downturn have sapped the greatest attention of everyone in the airline industry. But there are other things that are still going on kind of behind the scenes. What other policy issues and economic issues are on your radar warranting concern, attention or action? Well, you know, we were happy with some of the uh, reforms. Uh, we certainly see them as uh, reforms. Uh, I mean, I don't think this one will be reversed on everyone's favorite topic, the emotional support animals. We were happy with that, and that seems pretty po widespread popular change. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, there were, I know there were folks who weren't happy with the uh, dropping the uh, request for information on distribution uh practices and uh, we we need or, or they redefined uh, uh, or more clearly defined unfair and deceptive practices rules. So we'll be watching closely to see if there's a different sort of consumer protection philosophy uh, in the Buttigieg administration. Uh, uh, and then uh, I guess on the you know EPA and uh, perhaps international relations standpoint, you know how aggressive will this? Uh, administration and uh, Congress be on aviation-specific emissions? You know, that that's the whole question. To the extent we're singled out, what's it going to be? And then, uh, you know, we the other things are we're tending to see a lot of things at the state and local level that if they don't address our directly employed workers, uh, they may affect our costs and the number of people we're able to Whose, whose employment we're able to support uh, for contractors, ground service workers. There's been legislation in, in New York, New Jersey, San Francisco, and we see more of these, which is very difficult in what you know to be a fundamentally uh, interstate, international kind of business to deal with this patchwork of rules that uh, we, we feel we pay very well and we're happy to have uh, as it goes to our contracted workers, we're happy to have uh, states debate appropriate wage and health care and overtime provisions and sick leave. We don't want to be singled out as an industry. This should be statewide, all company debates. We don't want to have to play by 
uh, different rules simply because that's where it was politically convenient to make a change. And look, I'm, I've spent the last 10 months dedicated to on a mission to preserve 750,000 jobs and arguably the other 10 million that we support throughout the supply chain. The last thing I want to do is see new cost pressures that compromise our ability to keep all those people employed. And those, those things are, are like provisions of insurance and minimum wage and other other requirements. There's correct? wages, overtime, sick leave accrual, healthcare supplements, which is arguable. I mean, there's a so-called prevailing wage and then the healthcare increment. And it's sometimes it's not clear, well, what if I already pay that amount? And, uh, and then you'll see some states declaring suddenly, as you know, we're a 24-7 business. And suddenly they're saying all of Sunday shall be considered overtime eligible for pay rates. Uh, oh, really? Sunday for an airline is considered overtime? Uh, a lot of people want to fly Sunday. And that's no different than Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday for us. And in some of these cases, it's legislation that would actually have these perverse consequences where you, you, you know, someone can no longer do a, uh, a 10 hour, four day week, which is very popular because suddenly anything over 10 hours in a given day is considered overtime. So you're going to say, well, I, and then I'm going to have to reduce you an eight hour shift and you're going to have to go back to five days. So just don't, don't micromanage our business and don't single us out and, and to the extent you do single us out, you need to understand how the operation works. And you can't just suddenly say, you know, federal holidays and uh, Sundays are all overtime or that, you know, if someone wants to work 10 hours times four days a week instead of eight and five, you know, don't penalize us both for that. And some of those federal holidays and weekends are the busiest times of year to travel. So Well, that's absolutely right, which deck. is when we want to be well-staffed and, you know, for our customers. And uh, so as I, yeah, as the holidays show every year, having the proper amount of staff is very important. I think the main point that in the halls of the legislature, these things may sound very popular and even noble, but they, they have outcomes that might not be consistent with the objective. Fascinating. And I think that's, that's one of the ways in which A4A and, and the other associations that represent these various different org companies help push that message across and push that those facts across, correct? Yes, I would absolutely say that uh, in the second half of, of this past year, probably more of my time was spent on state and local issues than it was on federal issues. I also spent some on, there's been Canadian legislation and uh, to a lesser extent, some stuff in Europe. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, my job, um, aside from the, the part of tracking the industry's performance and, and communicating that to the media, is whenever there's a policy proposal, whether it's one that we're pushing or one that, to which we're reacting, to make sure that people understand the economics of that. If you do X, it means Y. Some people argue the political ramifications, some do the... Uh, the uh, legal ramifications. My job is to lay out the economic implications. And a good job you do of it pretty well, laying it out. Well, thank you. That, and, and that's true of regulations mm -hmm. too, not just legislation. Definitely cost-benefit analysis that goes into the regulatory side too. Yeah.
that's the stuff I hand off to my deputy. Mostly. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm half, I'm half joking, but you know, like some of that cerebral stuff. Uh... Well, I have one last question and, uh, which I ask every single guest on the podcast. Uh, if you could wave a magic wand and change or fix one thing about the aviation and airline industry, what would you change and why? Oh uh, yeah. Great question. I, if it's okay, I'm going to give you two answers because one is, one is very operational and the other is more aspirational. But the first one is the more aspirational one, which I would say our perception or our image, because uh, we, we want to have very happy customers, uh, even our image as an investable entity. So we want to have very uh, happy investors and, of course, employees. And I think, uh, well, there's certainly things like any other industry we can do. Uh, better, I think there are a lot of constraints on our operation, and we we do um, most of the time a pretty darn good job, and don't get enough credit. And we're very involved in you know philanthropic efforts and social justice and disaster relief and and moving military troops. So there, there's really a lot of good on the and and by the way, better image often leads to less regulation. <laughs> so there's a very tangible benefit. Uh, and then on the operational side, I. I uh, I guess I'd say I wish um, we could economically get to, uh, uh, you know, alternative energy uh, very quickly. You know, I think it would ease our logistics of moving fuel to the airplane, of taking fueling delays, of, of, of grappling with the, uh, you know, the climate issues. So uh, it would probably make the plane lighter, although maybe not in the case of a heavy battery, but you know, all the calculations we have to do about how much fuel to carry on board and all, all those, uh, and not, and, and also the, just the volatility of the fuel price, which, uh, is, is such a big, that with, uh, along with labor are our two biggest costs. So that, those are my two answers. Those are two very, hopefully we can make some strides to making those, those wishes or changes come into being. Well, John, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed the conversation and and hope you have as well. I certainly have, Martin. Thank you. Listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about John or the work that he does with A4A, as well as their other work, I encourage you to visit airlines.org. And they also have a regular and active update on the airlines.org Twitter user accounts, which will also be linked in the podcast description. As a reminder, all 10 episodes of the P-56 Aviation Podcast can be found at p56podcast.com or your preferred streaming service. And as always, you're welcome to reach out if you have any questions or suggestions or recommendations via email to me at p56podcast at gmail.com or via Instagram at p56podcast. Please join me next week for another deep dive into the aviation and airline industry. Thanks for listening and have a great week.